So often we want our trust in Christ to be on the basis of our understanding the details of who God is and what he is doing. The problem is we have a God who though he has revealed himself, he is a God that cannot be fully revealed. And we have a God that has chosen not to fully reveal himself within this life. And he has revealed himself, and he has revealed himself truly and honestly, and he calls us as his people to trust him in light of what he has revealed and to especially trust him with what he hasn't. This brings us to our our text once again this morning as we go back to Ephesians chapter 1, where we will focus in on verses 11 and 12 this morning, which are um, the summation of some extremely difficult, uh, difficult truth that God has revealed to us, but it is a difficult truth that he has called us to receive in order that in Christ, not not only do we experience an extravagant freedom and forgiveness, but it is in Christ that we experience an extravagant comfort and confidence in the God who works all things according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians chapter 1. I am going to begin reading at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we need you to reveal yourself to us here through the words that you have given us to know you. And we need help this morning, as we do every day, to learn to stop listening to the many competing voices for our hearts and instead attune ourselves to your voice 
to receive what you say and to trust you and to live our lives on the basis of who you are, what you have done for us in Christ, and where all of this is headed. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the most difficult things for me in preparing sermons is trying to figure out how to say what I see in the text. I love the sermon process up to that point. I like to read the scripture, and I like to pray through the scripture, and I like to look at the original language, and I like to, uh, to dig into the theology and the redemptive history and all the stuff that's there. And I get excited about the opportunity to share God through this passage of Scripture, whatever it is I'm looking at. What I don't get excited about is how to frame it in such a way that it helps draw you into it when you haven't spent all week reading it and studying it and praying through it and looking at the theology, and looking at the redemptive history, looking at the cultural and sociological context of, of, the, of what is happening. You haven't done all that. You, you are coming cold turkey in a sense. I don't think this one is as difficult for you to enter into. Because this... Uh, text in this text God God presents himself to us in a way that is supposed to on the basis of the extravagant freedom and and forgiveness that we have in Christ it is supposed to ground us in the extravagant comfort and confidence that belongs to those who are free and who are forgiven in Jesus Christ. The challenge here, though, is in what God presents to us that is to celebrate just how awesome that comfort and confidence is. It challenges us to the very core of our essence as those who, yes, have been redeemed in Christ, but who also still have the effects of the fall that is still present within our lives. Beloved, Paul, as he is gushing about how awesome God is, to these believers in Ephesus who had come to know Jesus Christ through very powerful events and through very difficult circumstances. He is gushing over how awesome God is in Jesus Christ to us. And in his gushing as he is unfolding this work of Jesus Christ, one of the things that Paul is expressing to us here is that the work of Christ is not God's ultimate aim. 
I'm going to say it a different way. Your salvation in Jesus Christ is not God's ultimate aim here with Christ. God's ultimate aim, we are told here, is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. That's God's ultimate aim. Your salvation in Christ is a means towards God accomplishing this ultimate purpose. God created. I think some of you heard some good stuff about that this morning in Sunday school. And he created to reveal his goodness, his truth, his beauty. And to draw humanity whom he created in his own image. To draw them into that goodness and truth and beauty that have been experienced within the Trinity for all eternity. And within this creation... He created Adam, and he set Adam up as his vice regent within creation. Where God was going to rule, where God was going to oversee, where God was going to continue to do his work in creation through his vice regent, Adam. And, and through Adam, what God was, was ultimately uh, looking to do was uh, to provide an existence of glory and joy. Adam was to serve as this vice regent to participate in God's purposes to bring everything in the universe into a glorious unity. Adam is presented here not just simply as prophet, priest, and king. He, he is, as you would see later in the Psalms and in Hebrews 1, he, as this vice regent, he is the leader of worship. Adam, the worship leader of the whole creation. Leading worship in order that the entire universe would be drawn into the glorious unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This was God's original purpose. And what Paul is telling us is that the failure of Adam has not and will not and cannot keep God from accomplishing that same purpose. And where the first Adam failed the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, 
as the God-man, as the God who comes and takes to himself flesh, that Jesus Christ becomes the unifying point of everything in heaven and on earth. In this one God-man in whom divinity and humanity coexist. And then through his work of serving and worshiping his Father, in his work of dedicating and devoting himself to his Father, in his work of living perfectly as the embodiment of the Father, as the embodiment of everything that God is, as Jesus is revealing the Father, he becomes the Passover lamb. He dies a sacrificial death, but he rises in a victorious resurrection. And in this God-man, what you have in the resurrection is the new heavens and the new earth that have now been introduced in the unity of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is doing is he's drawing people out of the kingdom of darkness, drawing people out of the kingdom of Satan, drawing people out of the sin and misery that Adam's sin plunged all of us into, drawing us out back into his kingdom where we now join our hearts and voices with the sweet singer of Israel, the resurrected Christ who leads the worship in the heavenly places where our worship gets drawn into and mediated through the worship of Jesus Christ. This is where God says, Everything is headed. And it has begun because of the resurrection. We're not waiting on it. It is here. Jesus said over and over, I'm here. The kingdom is here. But it's not here in its fullness. And it's not the only kingdom that is still here. Beloved, you and I have been called out of one kingdom and we have been placed into this new kingdom. And we are called as citizens of this new kingdom to embody the reality of that new kingdom to the old kingdom. That's what we're called to do as God's people so that through the ministry of Jesus Christ, where we lost an opportunity in Adam, it has been re regained for us in Jesus Christ. So that, beloved, you and I, as we live lives in worship, as we live lives of devotion to God, as we live lives in which we seek to glorify and enjoy him in all things, we are participating in and we are revealing this grand thing. But Jesus didn't come, Paul is saying here, just to deal with the sin problem. 
Jesus came to fulfill this bigger purpose of God. Now how can we be confident that this ultimate purpose of God is going to reach that final phase where it is fully introduced to the point that it is the only kingdom that exists. What he tells us here is that he is the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There are two basic words that you'll find in the Greek New Testament that refer to this concept of will. It's boule and thelematos. What's really interesting here in the text is where it says all things according to the counsel of his will. It is all things according to the boule of his thelematos. Everything according to the will of his will. It is such a sure and confident will that is going to be worked out and accomplished and achieved exactly to the way God desires is that it's described in terms of God's will of his will. God is doing all things according to the will of his will. That brings a challenge for us. When you say all things, you mean all the good stuff. No. All things. All things that are happening within the history of the world, even before the fall of Adam, has been working out according to the will of his will. This is difficult for us because guess what? You and I are not eternal like God is eternal. You and I are not omniscient as God is omniscient. You and I are not omnipotent as God is omnipotent. You and I live a life as creatures We live a life of dependency. We live a life within a context of history. We live a life within an unfolding of events that uh, to us have certain causal power or to us are uh, the necessary effects of causal powers that we don't know and we don't understand. To put it a different way, even though God as Paul says, has revealed the mystery of his will, God has not revealed every mystery. And beloved, you and I follow a God and trust a God who is still mysterious to us. Not mysterious in terms of some form of mysticism, 
but mysterious in the sense that as we talked about last week, mystery is something that's unknown that is made known. And what God has not done is he has not chosen to make known to us every single detail. He just hasn't. What he has done is says, in light of what I have revealed, I am trustworthy. And so give me your heart and trust me. Well, why? Because everything that will happen in your life will happen for the purpose of you receiving the inheritance that Christ has secured for you. We don't tend to think this way. We don't tend to think in terms of, well, that, that negative things have positive reasons and positive purposes. Every now and then we might say, oh, well, all things for the good. But a lot of times we don't really believe it. Our hearts are not captured by it. The result is that we often don't experience the comfort and the confidence that faith in a God who works all things for the accomplishment of his purposes, we don't tend to experience that comfort and that confidence. The God who reveals himself in Isaiah as the God who says the beginning from the end, and he even says, I'm telling you what's going to happen so that when it does happen, you'll know that it didn't happen by accident. I'm telling you what's going to be the case because when it comes to pass, you will know that it's happening because I planned it. And I, I want you to embrace this so that you will have confidence in me. I'm doing this so that you will be comforted in me. And what specifically is God talking about in Isaiah 46? He's talking about what happened in Isaiah 45. There's the answer. What is it that he has said in Isaiah 45? I'm going to send you a Messiah. I'm going to judge you for your idolatry. I'm going to send you away out of the land of promise. I'm going to allow Babylon to come in and run over you and capture you and take you away. But when you're there, guess what? I'm going to send you a Messiah. But guess who the Messiah is in Isaiah 45? It's a pagan king, Cyrus. God's going to send a pagan king in order to free his people from captivity in Babylon. Who is it that leads people, the, the Israelites, to, to be free within Babylon to return after the 70 years of captivity, it is King Cyrus. And this is part of the difficulty. This is what part of the difficulty you see in Habakkuk. Habakkuk, God's prophet, says, God, things are awful around here. We're supposed to be your people. We, we have your law. We're supposed to resemble what you have revealed, but instead, we're awful. We're wicked. 
And God says, you know what, Habakkuk, you're right. And Habakkuk says, well, when are you going to do something about it? And God says, well, I'm about to do something about it. But it's going to shock you. And it's going to knock your socks off. Because what I'm going to do to deal with this problem is I'm going to bring in a foreign nation who are going to run over you. And what does Habakkuk do? Well, well hold, 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 hold up. Let's, let's not get crazy. Yeah, we're bad, but we're not like those people, right? But the reality is what? They are exactly like those people. They are like those people theologically because whether you are from Israel or you are a Gentile, you are from whom? Adam. The problem is the sin introduced by Adam. And it was wrong for Habakkuk to see himself as more righteous than the Babylonians. And what God is doing is revealing things, revealing what we need, revealing that, that even when we think we have God figured out, we still don't. We are not more righteous. Think about that. The next time you're tempted to get in an argument with maybe one of those Democrats, you're not more righteous. And they are not more righteous. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God uses, yes, even sinners who are not redeemed to bring about the accomplishment of his eternal purposes. Beloved, you and I serve a God who works out all things according to the will of his will. And there is no evil that can stop it. And he even uses evil to accomplish it. You see, God was not just up in heaven watching Jesus be put on trial by wicked men and then crucified by wicked men. God wasn't just up there watching going, okay, well, how can I make lemonade out of lemons here? He wasn't just looking at what's going on and saying, well, can, can I bring some good out of this? It was happening according to his purpose. And I'm going to be the first one to tell you, I don't get it. I do not fully grasp or understand that. And for years, it was really difficult for me to do so. And some people within the reform world want to latch on to this too quickly and too easily. We call that the cage stage of Calvinism. Where you have people that uncritically just embrace this and then go around and they start ruining their relationships because they promote a simplistic view of what God is revealing here. Those guys should be put in a barrel and you open up the lid every now and then to feed them and to disciple them. And then when they're ready, you let them out. You want to be discouraged, go to seminary. And listen to the way young guys will take these eternal, difficult 
mysterious realities and be like, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, yeah, God just does all things according to his will. Well, guess what? That's meant to perplex us so that we will trust him, so that we will have to live by faith and not just follow him because he has given us a road map where every detail has been explained. But secondly, one of the benefits of this is that it can help you to stop asking a very bad question. Well, not bad, all right? That's too, uh, that's too broad. An unhelpful, an unwise question. And the question is this. What is God's will for my life? Am I supposed to marry this girl and is it God's will for me to marry this guy is it God's will that I take this job is it God's will that I fill in the blank fill in the blank fill in the blank fill in the blank one of my favorite stories was talking to this lady who was wrestling over whether or not she was it was God's will for her to take a job that was going to require her to move and on the morning in which she was required to give her answer, she woke up on her own before the alarm went off. She woke up and she looked over and guess what time it was? 7.47 in the morning. So obviously God was telling her, it's my will that you get on that plane and take that job. (laughs) Now guess what? That may be true. It may be true. All of it may be true. The 747 part may be true. The problem is, he hasn't told us to know whether or not that is true. God has not promised us to reveal to us all the details of his will for us in our daily lives of following him. He has not promised to reveal that. He has revealed the mystery of his will, but not every single mystery that exists within that will for you and for me. And what's interesting here is is that the people that lived in Ephesus who had come to know Christ, if you remember from Acts 19, they had come to know Christ out of what? Out of a culture that was saturated in in the religious worship of divination and magic, where their religious lives were built on this cultic understanding that the gods knew every detail, but they, were, they didn't want to share it with you because they were stingy. And so you had to either earn it from them or you had to trick them into sharing it. And if you went to the right person who could open up a fish and rightly read the guts that were in the fish, you might learn the will of God for you. If you went to the temple and engaged in uh, ecstatic immorality, 
then through the temple prostitute, you might be able to trick the God into sharing with you the details that you're wanting to know. It was a religion in which the gods don't like to reveal themselves unless the gods are only revealing something to reinforce that you are that god's slave and that they're using you. And they were saved. We are, set, we are told in Acts 19 they were saved mightily out of that approach to religion where they took their magical books, where they would have taken their magic rings and necklaces and amulets and all these different accoutrements that they had of their magic. And we are told that they threw it into the fire. They have been saved powerfully out of this perspective of, of divination, of trying to figure out the God's will for your life. And what Paul is telling them is they've been saved out of that into the will of God in which the purpose of their life is to be joined into the purpose of what God is doing, which is to exalt Christ in all things. What this means, beloved, is that that freedom that we have in Christ is a freedom from trying to use God in order to know his will in following him, in order to be freed by God to know his will in order to follow him. Now, was that clear as mud? In theology, we talk about God's will in two basic ways. There is God's decretive will, will his will, and there is God's preceptive will. There's God's will that is secret to him, that he knows within the counsels of his heart, that is, is what he has determined to do and accomplish and the means by which he's going to do all that. And those things he has not promised to reveal in the detail and totality. But there is God's preceptive will. Precepts. Here's how you live as my people. It is God's will for you not to kill. It's God's will for you not to commit adultery. It's God's will for you not to serve other gods. It's God's will for you to obey your parents. All right, you see what's going on here? God has revealed his moral will for you for how to live as those who have been freed and forgiven in Jesus Christ. And he has promised that his grace is what empowers you to do that within this life. And so in terms of seeking out God's will, if you're trying to figure out or, or to get God to share with you the secrets that he has not promised to reveal of whether or not I am supposed to marry this specific person. What he has done is said this. Here is the kind of person you should pursue in marriage. A person who belongs to me just as you belong to me. A person who will encourage you to follow me instead of discourage you from following me. He has promised to give you the enablement of his grace to love your spouse 
regardless of whether or not your spouse loves you back the way that you prefer for them to love you. You see the difference? Has God revealed his will for you in terms of marriage? Yes. He has revealed to you the power for your marriage. He has revealed for you the picture of your marriage, which is Christ in the church. He has revealed to you the purpose of your marriage to exalt Christ in all things. What he has not promised is to tell you which specific person within this world is the only one by which you accomplish those things. There is a freedom that comes with this, beloved. A freedom that in following Christ, we don't have to try to figure out all the little details of whether or not God wants me to fill in the blank. Because God has revealed to us how God wants you to. He has revealed to you what he wants you to do. Do you see the difference? God has not promised to give you every little detail, but he has already revealed the mysteries of his will in uniting all things in heaven and on earth through the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And beloved, the purpose that the triune God has in accomplishing these things is a purpose that he has drawn you and me into so that in our daily lives, we let go of trying to figure out the secret things and we embrace to the fullness the grace of God by which you and I can exalt Christ in all things. Whether we do that because things are going well, because I'm happy with my spouse or my child at the moment, or because work is fulfilling at the moment, or because my political party is winning at the moment, or because the job that I'm thinking about God has written in the sky, David, yes, take it. But because he has told you that I am constraining all things in Jesus Christ into this glorious unity, and you have been saved out of the kingdom of darkness and drawn into that kingdom of the beloved by which now your life serves in order to bring glory to Christ in all things. God is working all things according to the will of his will. And sometimes it's hard and mysterious and frustrating and aggravating and other times it's easy and joyful and happy but regardless of the way you are experiencing the complexity of God's will beloved what God has told you is that in Christ you have already been blessed with all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That in Christ, God's eternal desire of possessing you as his own has been accomplished. That in Christ, you have been adopted as his son or as his daughter. 
that in Christ you have been freed from the penalty and power of sin, and one day you will be freed from its presence. And he has told you that in Christ you are completely and utterly and totally forgiven, and that God is doing all of these things through Christ within you to secure for you, regardless of your earthly circumstances, the, in the inheritance of the eternal places. And it is the eternal realities of what you have in Christ that tell you where the details of your life find their meaning. Beloved in Christ, God is using your life to accomplish his purpose to exalt Christ in all things. Join in with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, so much of this gushing of Paul is hard and it is difficult, it is complex, and it challenges us. And it challenges us in a way that other things don't often challenge us. The parts of your word that we like. This truly challenges us to let go of self-determination, of self-control, of self-promotion, of self-focus, and to turn our eyes to Jesus and to live lives that follow you and are devoted to you, not just when it is to what we consider our benefit, but when it is to the benefit of Christ, regardless of if that brings us ease and pleasure or whether that brings us difficulty. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help me to learn to relinquish living my life through my own uh, self-determination and instead, Lord, help me to embrace the mystery of your will. The details that you haven't promised, Father, may we all look to the bigger picture that has been revealed in order to tell us how to live out that new life we have in Christ. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use a passage like this to humble us. Not to humble us in making us feel bad about ourselves and humbling us to stop thinking about ourselves so much and to glory in just how inexplicably awesome and extravagant you are and have been to us in Jesus Christ. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.